And our scripture reading will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church in defense of his ministry, but in particularly here in this passage, verses 16 through 18, he encourages them not to lose heart for the difficulties that he has faced have produced a glory beyond comparison. And he, he writes here in these verses, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the coronavirus pandemic continues on behalf of everyone, I just want to express a word of thanks to thank all of those who are doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, hospital workers who really serve on the front lines battling the coronavirus. We know that you place yourselves at risk. I want to thank on behalf of others too, the family members, knowing that they might bring the virus home, and we're so grateful for your support of them as well. Thank you as well to all of those who help in the public service of others. We give thanks to our government. We give thanks to our governor, those who make very, very difficult decisions. We give God thanks for our pharmacists who work with many who are sick, giving them needed medications. We give thanks for the grocery store workers who have so many people who come into the grocery store and yet they stock the shelves faithfully, they clean the carts at night, and they are around people all the time. We give thanks for the EMTs, the ambulance drivers, the firefighters who respond to the 911 calls and go out and they're the first responders. We give thanks to all of those who are delivery drivers and warehouse workers as online orders continue to skyrocket. And we give thanks for the numerous people who continue to serve others in the wake of the difficult situations as we adopt to this new normal. Household after household, city after city, state after state, and nation after nation are quarantining for the sake of their own health and safety and for the sake of others. 
This idea of quarantining for the sake of the health of others is not a new idea. In an article in the Washington Post as well as in BBC News, the need for a quarantine today to contain the spread of the coronavirus has reminded historians of a certain small village back in the 17th century in England. That little village was called Iman. The Black Plague, or the Black Death, ran in various forms from 1347 all the way to 1665, and it killed at least 25 million people in Europe, and anywhere from 75 million to 200 million worldwide. The symptoms were flu-like, and the incubation period was three to seven days. In September of 1665, there was a tailor's assistant who brought a bunch of flea-infested blankets from London. And soon, many of the 800 residents of this little village of Iman were perishing from the disease. Iman's rector, whose name was William, along with the previous rector, decided to quarantine that village to contain the disease. This little village of Iman lay along an important trade route between two prominent cities, and if the current plague was brought to either of those cities, many more would die. But together, they persuaded the villagers to voluntarily self-quarantine. And according to eyewitness accounts, a quarantine cordon was established with a one-mile radius marked with a ring of stones. And for 14 months, no one went in or out of the village. Food was left at the boundary stone by nearby townspeople in exchange for gold coins, which they dipped in vinegar which villagers believed would disinfect them. The death rate skyrocketed. One woman, whose name was Elizabeth Hancock, buried six of her children and her husband inside of one month. To limit infection within this little village of Iman, church services were held outdoors. Some villagers left their homes to live outdoors nearby. And by the time the plague ended, 260 of Iman's 800 residents died, more than double the mortality rate of the plague in London. But their self-sacrifice had worked. The plague never spread to nearby towns, and 14 months later, in November of 1667, the quarantine was lifted. One of the survivors' descendants wrote in a history of the village that succeeded generations of Iman's village should admire their ancestors who, quote, in sublime, unparalleled resolution, gave up their lives, yea, doomed themselves to put pestilential death to save the surrounding country. There is wisdom in what they did and the self-quarantining that we see today, and that is the world in which we live in now. Because we live in a world that will never escape suffering. It's not just the coronavirus. Suffering will continue to occur because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has been infected by something far worse than the coronavirus, and that is sin. Suffering happens because this world has been infected by sin. The cascading effects even of the coronavirus in hospitals today are multitudinal. People cannot 
get cancer treatments that are needed, they've been delayed, emergency services in some areas are taxed out, the suffering has cascading effects upon the daily life of everyone. Job 5.7 says, For man is born of trouble as sparks fly upward. We are born into a world that is filled with suffering to varying degrees that people experience. Whether it's at the hands of the sin of others, such as crime, whether it is suffering because of a calamity, whether it is suffering because of disasters, whether it is suffering because we ourselves are sinners and we are, have done wrong, there is consequences. There are consequences to what we do. And with, in all of this suffering, however, Jesus gives us hope. For he says in John 16, in the night before he went to the cross, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. No matter what the source of pain may be, no matter what the source of suffering may be, it is God who provides comfort and peace. And that peace can only come in the heart in which God gives to us his supernatural peace. And as much as we would like God to simply remove the suffering of this world, as much as we would like God to simply extract us out of our situation, no matter what it would be, doing so often circumvents God's purposes for us. Merely pulling out of whatever it may be, well, it robs us of what God intends for us to learn. And God intends for us to learn to have the right perspective such that we might be able to persevere and endure the difficulties and to trust God in and through whatever situation we are in. And within these three verses that we've read today, the Apostle Paul shares with us three perspectives that he held on to to endure suffering. Three perspectives that he held on to in order to persevere through suffering. The theme of this particular chapter is about perseverance, is about the gospel shining brightly and not losing heart. In fact, if you look at verse 16, it begins by saying, therefore, we do not lose heart. But if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 4, it begins in a similar way. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. And throughout this chapter, he talks about how having the gospel, which is both lived out in verse 2, and is even greater when we think about how God has granted to us this precious treasure, the gift of salvation and the gospel message, how God has granted to us, even in these earthen vessels, speaking of people, these clay pots, verse 7, throughout all of the trials and the sufferings to come, God is glorified and people will give God glory when others come to know the Savior, verse 15. And so when we come to verse 16, it continues on this idea in light of the blessing of being a, a, a utensil, a vessel of the message of Jesus Christ, don't quit, don't lose heart in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all of these problems that we may have. God is gracious to us to sustain us, and we are not to lose heart. He's blessed us to be a blessing to others. And so there is value. 
There is value that comes from being used of God to be an encouragement, a being a blessing to others because God has blessed us with this precious treasure of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We have, we believe, so we are to speak the gospel. So don't lose heart when trials come. And three particular perspectives Paul shares in these three verses, beginning in verse 14, that will help us to endure whatever suffering we may have. The first is this. The first principle is even as our physical health decays, we are becoming more like Jesus. Even as our physical health decays, we are becoming more like Christ. It says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The contrast is unmistakable. It's the contrast between our physical body and our spiritual life, and it reminds us that even as our physical health, over time, we age, it decays, we are becoming more like Christ as Christ works within us. And that reality should make us more and more aware of what our priorities ought to be, of what our priorities ought to be. When Paul writes a letter to his young protege, Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says to Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Literally, billions of dollars are spent each year on gym memberships, on clothing, on diets, on vitamins, on supplements, on exercise equipment, on cosmetics, on surgery, on hair care, on jewelry, on beauty products, on fashion to dress up and make our physical body look younger, look more beautiful, look more in shape, whatever it may be. Billions of dollars are spent upon all of those things. And while our health is important, what is even more important is our godliness. Just as we can be so disciplined in being conscientious of our health, how much more important it is to be disciplined in the training of ourselves for godliness. And not to say we are too busy, too tired, too disinterested in spending time with God. That is a priority, that God is concerned about our relationship with Him, that God is concerned about our godliness and character as God renews our life. As it says here, being renewed day by day. This is a work of God within the life of the believer. It is called sanctification, which many just call spiritual growth, Sanctification is that process by which God conforms us into the image of His Son. And that can be hindered or it can be helped by how we spend our time in fostering our spiritual lives. And of course, we're to be good stewards of our health. But the fact of the matter is that we are all aging, our bodies are breaking down, our bodies are falling apart, and as you age, you notice things don't work quite as well anymore. The true Christian not only grows older, but is growing godlier 
as one walks with Christ. And true believers will mature the inner man. The inner man is being renewed on a daily basis. And if a person claims to be a Christian and is not growing more like Christ and years pass by without any development of any real spiritual fruit, then there's reason to wonder where they are in their relationship with God in the first place. And each day, among the true believer, among the true Christian, God is renewing their heart day by day. But we have a perspective as Christians that others don't. Harry Durbinville felt that way in his book, The Best is Yet to Be. He writes, I feel so sorry for folks who don't like to grow old. I revel in my years. They enrich me. I would not exchange the abiding rest of soul, the measure of wisdom I have gained from the sweet and bitter and perplexing experiences of life, nor the confirmed faith I now have in the love of God. For all the bright and uncertain hopes and tumultuous joys of youth, indeed I would not. These are the best years of my life. The way grows brighter, the birds sing sweeter, the wind blows softer, the sun shines more radiantly than ever before. I suppose my outer man is perishing, but my inward man is being joyously renewed day by day. The best is yet to be. Many of you remember Walter Jesperson. He was a missionary that attended here many years ago. He turned 100. We celebrated his birthday, and then soon after he passed. Do you remember what he would always say when we would greet him? He would often say to me, do you know what? The best is yet to come. And so even though our outer man is decaying, even though our hearing goes and our sight goes and our attention sometimes might be shorter than it was before, we know that those who are in Christ Jesus, God renews their heart and we have a wisdom and a peace that God grants to us in his word that God renews our heart. We're becoming more like Christ each and every day. So even as our physical health decays, we're becoming more like Jesus every day. Number two, godly suffering results in heavenly reward. Godly suffering results in heavenly reward. Verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul has experienced suffering unlike any other individual for the sake of the gospel that I know of. Suffering for the gospel, though, Paul says here, it's momentary. It is light. It is producing an eternal weight of glory. Paul was very well acquainted with what it meant to suffer for the gospel. In Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, Paul had to run from the Jews who plotted against his life. In Pisidian Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, the Jews, leading men, instigated a persecution against Paul and against Barnabas. In Iconium, the Jews stirred the Gentiles up against the Christians, and they were divided, mistreated, and they came out to stone them. And in Lystra, Paul was stoned. He was dragged out of the city. And then in Philippi, where he goes, he is beaten, and he's imprisoned in stocks. 
And then in Thessalonica, the preaching of the gospel, he infuriated the Jews, and he had to leave that city. And then when he went to Berea, they followed him all the way to Berea, and, and there he was driven out of there as well. Then they hauled him in front of the Roman proconsul Gallio, and in Ephesus, the silversmiths and the idol sellers were so upset, and they turned the people against God and, and against Paul. He knew what it meant to suffer. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29, it tells us of what he suffered for Christ. Sometimes it was from enemies. Sometimes it was from what we would call natural disasters. Sometimes it was against what, what, what others might come. But he, here he was saying in this particular passage in 2 Corinthians 11, sometimes it was just through the difficulty of the work that came. Verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? Speaking of others, Paul said, I speak as of insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You know, that's almost 200 lashes across his back. His back must have been scarred like no one else's back would have been. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from the rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from external things, there is the daily pressure of me, of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Having been beaten and battered, his life among those around him would have been, oh, what a shame. Others might have thought, maybe he has done something wrong to receive God's punishment such as this. In those days, if you were not blessed with wealth and prosperity and health, you were assumed to not be in God's favor. But Paul suffered all of these things for the sake of Christ and for a person who was always in peril and suffering, who was always in danger, seemed as if all of these things, and yet he says, light momentary afflictions. You know, when he was shipwrecked, he was shipwrecked on a journey when he was going to Rome and he landed on this island, this island of Malta. And you may remember that he was sitting by the fire, and he was bitten by a snake. The people, the locals, were sure that Paul must have done something wrong. And as they said in Acts 28.5, though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And they expected him to, quote, to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But what happened? Verse 6 of Acts 28. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happened to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. 
in that day, anyone who suffered as much as Paul did, such as this shipwreck, must have thought, well, this person was being punished. God brings us through suffering for a particular purpose, but it is sometimes because God has something to teach us. And sometimes it is at the hand of those who are sinners as well. In the Chicago Tribune, there's an article about a judge, a judge named Joan Humphrey, and the article reads, quote, Adversity is too small a measure of all that has been ripped from U.S. District Judge Joan Humphrey Lefkow. Since the February evening when she came home from work, she walked down to her basement and saw the blood on the floor. On that day, Lefkow's 64-year-old husband and 89-year-old mother were shot to death in her Northside home because of her job by a man who would have preferred to kill her. She found the bodies. Quote, as a sojourner on this earth, she goes on, trying to explain in these months how she kept her sanity and her faith, I don't feel terribly entitled. I do believe the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. It's your responsibility to accept the adversity as well as you accept the abundance, unquote. Would you be able to say the same? To say, I don't feel terribly entitled. It's my responsibility to accept the adversity and the difficulties as well as we accept the abundance. So very true, isn't it? So very true on this side of the sinful world, doing what is right, accepting the blessings has always been easy, but accepting the difficulties and the adversities are also a part of what we're to do. Just as in Job, Job chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, when Job had lost his family, he had lost his possessions, he had lost his health, he had lost his home, he had lost his dignity. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Do you know that Job here recognizes that it was God who gave, it was God who took away, but never did he blame God. In fact, he bowed in worship, and he did so. So too, the Apostle Paul, in all of his beatings, in all of his calamities that he had faced, in all of the trials and difficulties, he considered it momentary, he considered it light. It would be very difficult, I'm sure, for all of us if we went without food, if we were always on the run, if we had to live underneath some circumstance such as outdoors without a home, if we had to live being chased by those who wanted us dead, if we had been whipped multiple times with scars all across our back, would we say these are momentary light afflictions? That's what Paul characterized that as. 
How could he look at it in that way? How could he have that perspective, especially when in our view it would have been so very severe? It's because he compares it to eternity. He says, in the eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, the reward of eternity is far, far better than these afflictions that I face now. That's how he was able to have that type of perspective. It's momentary. As you grow older, those of you who are older adults know that as time goes by, each and every year seems to go quicker and quicker. Your kids grow up faster and faster. You look back at the more difficult times only to realize how God has carried you through. And God gives us those wonderful memories as well as the adversity to remind us how he is always there that we are to have a godly response, just as Paul did, to the suffering that has come about. You know, with the world coming almost to a standstill, with the spread of the coronavirus, one example of a godly response to suffering comes from the early church. In early church history, for about the first 300 years of church history, about 280 or so, Christianity had been a faith that was persecuted. Christians were persecuted for their faith. Rome was the reigning power during that time. And during that time, between the time of Christ's death and 313, when Constantine proclaimed Christianity as, as uh, the Roman accepted faith, prior to that time, during that time, there was only a time when Nero had come to power that persecution was empire-wide. Nero had persecuted Christians about 64 A.D. and about 70 A.D. You remember, it's the fall of Jerusalem. And then, from then on, up until about 250 A.D., persecution among Christians was rather, uh, it was rather spotty. It was uh, sometimes sporadic. It was localized, sometimes led by a mob, sometimes led by a governor, but it wasn't empire-wide until 250 A.D. And in 250 A.D., an empire-wide persecution took place because of an indirect consequence of the emperor at that time, Decius. And he had made an edict, and the edict was in force for 18 months in 250 A.D. And that edict, during which that time brought about persecution among Christians empire-wide, in which many were killed for their faith. But there was a group of Christians that emerged who seemed to have been inspired by the life and the reputation of a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, we find him in the New Testament. He was a messenger from the Philippians who came to Paul risking his own life. As he came, he became sick. He almost died in the ministry. And Malcolm Duncan, in his book entitled Risk Takers, says this about those who rose up during that time of persecution around 252 A.D. There was a group of Christians. They were known as the Parabolani, and it's a word that is taken from the Greek word meaning risking his life in Philippians 2 verse 30. And the movement began in Carthage in A.D. 252, and it lasted several hundred years. These Parabolani, it was a group of people willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel. Because what had happened was that in 252 A.D., there was a devastating plague that hit the ancient North African coastal city of Carthage. 
Healthy people in Carthage began to just flee the city, leaving everything behind because this plague brought death, it brought disaster when it struck, and it was merciless. It claimed the lives of all those who stood in its path. During that outbreak of the plague that struck, the local authorities acted swiftly, they acted decisively, they piled up dead bodies, they were disposed of, and those who were suspected of having been contaminated were put outside the city walls, but its suffering and its, its damage and its death and disease was on an epic scale. But in Carthage, there was a bishop. His name was Cyprian, and he also acted quickly. He called the church together. As you know, many of those who were healthy had fled the city. But he invited the church and he challenged the church to go and to live among the sick and dying. And he challenged them to give up the comfort, to give up the security of their own well-being, to step into a world that was rejected, that was forgotten by those around in the society. And he set the example of Epaphroditus as an inspiration and also the example of Christ, telling them to give up their personal comforts, give up their finances in order to aid and care for and comfort all according to their need, not their faith, unquote. And the Parabolani, those who were Christians, rose up and took on the challenge, and they became a movement that served the broken, they served the poor, they served the rejected, they served the forgotten, they served the vulnerable, and they were inspired not only by the example of Epaphroditus, but those of Jesus Christ, the example of Christ. They, too, gave up the security for what they knew, their own health and their own finances, so that they could embark on an adventure to serve others whom the world had rejected. The Christians were the ones who stayed during that plague. The Christians were the ones who served others, and they had a huge impact and a huge testimony. And the question for you and I is, what is our response even today? Are we today thinking to ourselves just of ourselves and just of our own families? Are we thinking, how can I respond? And how can I be a help in this time of a worldwide pandemic that reflects Christ? Are we thinking to ourselves, stay away and my social distance is not just six feet, it's 60 feet? Are you thinking of your neighbors, perhaps, instead? Those who are elderly, those who have compromised immune systems are more susceptible to COVID-19. Do you think about how you might just be an encouragement to them? Maybe they might need groceries to be dropped off at their front door. Maybe there are others who are struggling financially. Maybe there are others who simply need a phone call. I even saw an email this week from volunteers who can sew to help make masks for our healthcare workers, whatever it may be. Are you thinking about how you can be a part of the solution and be a witness just like the Parabalani? Are you like those who would rather flee the city of Carthage if it were in that time? What is our response? Are we emboldened? Are we fearful? This is a very unique time, a very unique time in the history of the world. Talking with a family member who had lived through World War II, and even in World War II, they were telling me it wasn't quite like this because it had not spread through all of the world. But how do you persevere through suffering? 
Number one, even as our physical health is decaying, remember we are becoming more like Christ. And number two, we are to respond in a godly manner to suffering because it will result in heavenly reward. And thirdly, an eternal perspective outlasts the temporal. An eternal perspective outlasts the temporal. Paul says in verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Having an eternal perspective is not easy. It, it takes work. It takes effort, it says here, to look at those things, the text says, which are eternal. And the things that are temporal, proskairos, refers to things that are temporary, that don't last, that are destined to perish one day that belong in time and in short. Proskairos encompasses anything that is not eternal. All the ideas, the values, the possessions that we have of this world, achievements, they're all temporal. But if we want to be a person who can endure in a godly manner through suffering, we need to look at what is eternal. Scott Halfman writes, quote, Modern and postmodern culture revolves around a this-world orientation. The only long-term future our culture conceives to be important enough to plan for consistently is retirement. This pervasive preoccupation with living as long as possible, as healthy as possible, and as wealthy as possible has dramatically impacted the church in the West. Our knowledge and experience of God are so weak and our desire for the pleasures of the present so strong that we find it almost impossible to imagine that life with God in the world to come could be incomparably better than what we hope to experience in this world, unquote. This life is what many, even Christians, may be so tempted to live for. So much so that we desire what? Our wealth, being entertained, being happy in this life that it's incomparable when we think about the things of the future. This world, living for me, living for self, is pervasive, seen by many. Just as we watch the news, many decide that they want to enjoy themselves rather than the welfare of others. There was a plague that occurred after that Cyprian plague back in 252 that I had spoken about earlier, there was another plague that came about 150 years later. In the ancient Mediterranean city of Caesarea, there had already been suffering the effects in Caesarea of famine and of war, and now came the plague, and the citizens once again became fleeing the city. One group, though, decided to remain. They were the Christians. And the bishop, Eusebius, he reports, quote, all day long the Christians tended to the dying, to their burial, countless numbers, with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. And Eusebius continues to write on that because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, Christians, quote, their deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. 
That is what Paul wants. In verse 15 of chapter 4 here, it says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. When we do good, when we are people who are compassionate and we are people who are helped to solve the problem, glory goes to God and thanksgiving goes to God. One commentator writes about comparison shopping between the suffering of earth and the glory of heaven, between losing this world and gaining the world to come, leads to the conclusion that nobody ever outserves or outgives God. Whatever we give up in the present, even life itself, pales in comparison to what God will grant us in the future. The worst the world can do to us is kill us. In Paul's view, however, to die in Christ is gain, Philippians 1.21. Yet only those who wish to gain their lives with God will be able to lose their lives for Christ and the gospel. How do you know if your perspective is eternal or not. Just look at how you're reacting or your own response to our situation now. Are our eyes on ourselves and our own entertainment, our own safety, our own selves, or are we thinking also of others? How we might be even just be able to be an encouragement to encourage community, to encourage people in their perspective, to help people in the time of need. There are some, and I am so very grateful, who are emboldened, who have volunteered even more time to serve in our hospitals and to serve those who are sick. I praise God for all of those individuals A life that is eternally oriented will endure what is temporary, the temporary suffering that Paul calls momentary light affliction, and that we can look to God and say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord in all of these difficulties. So even as our physical health decays, we are to become more and more like Jesus by submitting to him as God works in our hearts. That godly suffering results in heavenly reward and an eternal perspective outlasts that which is temporal and helps us to persevere through all of these trials. James reminds us, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your goodness in our lives, for you have granted to us more than we deserve. We pray, Father, that you would help us not to have an attitude of entitlement, For we came into this world with nothing, and we will leave this world with nothing this world has to offer. But we pray, God, that you would help us to cling to what is eternal, that, Father, we would set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
that we would store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, that we would make the most of every opportunity for the time is short, that, Father, you would be honored and glorified, and that in the things that we do, you would receive all praise, and that glory and thanksgiving might be given to you as people come to know you through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.